0: Hello everybody and welcome to the Antifada I'm Sean KB and I'm here, as always, with Andy Folk What's up, man?
1: Hello, you never called me Andy Folk before, but that's fine Well, you know, yeah. uh, old, My old punk name
0: Old names die hard, my friend
1: Little Easter egg for the Fandies. Yeah, for,
2: for all the Fandies. <laughs> I thought it was. I thought your, name, your legal name was Antifada Andy
0: <laughs> Or Andy Fada
2: I still,
1: whenever I call myself by my legal name, which is Andy Gitlitz, I still get people saying,
0: why are you using that ridiculous pseudonym? (laughs) That's my name. It's your goddamn name. That's your publishing book name. But today you're Andy Folk. Some days you're Andy Fada. And always our guest today is Jamie Merchant, uh, who is a inveterate critic of political economy who lives in Chicago whose works have appeared in The Nation, The Baffler, and extensively under Paul Maddock Jr.'s editorship at the Brooklyn Rail. Uh, It's hard to think of a person better suited to discuss the economy and our relationship to it, since Jamie has made it his mission to critique the new technocratic economic nationalism that represents much of the political horizon of the social democratic left and increasingly the so-called dissident right. Jamie Merchant, welcome to the show.
2: Good to be here, guys. Thanks for having me.
0: It's our pleasure. I, we should say right off the bat, and we're not going to give uh, do this topic any justice, uh, there is a horrific um, attack going on in Gaza right now. Uh, it looks like war is broken out again uh, between uh, Hamas and uh, the IDF. Netanyahu has declared war. It is a terrifying and bloody time going on right now. And um, yeah, our thoughts are out to all the working class uh, of Palestine and the region. And we have to hope for some sort of secession, but it doesn't look like that's coming soon. So I don't know if you guys, Andy, if you wanted to say anything before we
1: Well, I've got a lot to say about it, but is that something that maybe we will talk about later on the show? What were you thinking?
0: Yeah, maybe we should uh take it uh like after we discuss the political economy stuff, we could maybe go over and and do stuff behind the paywall.
2: Yeah. Yeah, 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 we can we can definitely do that.
0: All right, sounds good. So Side sidebarring that for a little bit. Um, I was thinking a lot about this and I've read your wonderful articles in uh, Brooklyn Rail before Uh, your real attention to the critique of political economy, I think, has been very powerful and really good. And if people out there haven't read your work yet, we'll put a bunch of links uh, in the show description to it. As I was reading your works and and then comparing that to uh, the news, uh, the economic data and everything that we're getting, especially from this sort of um, neo-Keynesian social democratic left in this country, uh, which is really crowing, uh, given uh, the economic indicators over the last few months, uh, I thought, what a perfect time to have somebody on to critique this whole entire um, sort of mode of thinking about the economy and the world. Um, as one example of the way that the progressive punditry has been trying to gaslight the American working class uh, into believing that things are working out well for them right now, there's a man on Twitter called Will Stansel. Jamie, are you familiar with the Stansel character?
2: Oh, Yeah. He
0: is quite a prolific poster, I'll give him that. Andy, have you Speaking been Speaking
1: of made-up names, Will Stansel? <laughs>
2: yeah. I know. Like, How could it be a real name?
1: Like the the comedy troupe Stella yeah. used to use the name Jim Stansel <laughs> as their like funny made-up name and a, a real Stancil has appeared in the wild.
0: This guy was custom designed in a lab to both I don't know, infuriate us and also make us laugh. Um,
2: well, yeah. I was going to say my main familiarity with him is like people reposting him, like dunking on him, like Sean and like others, <laughs> like, yeah. like rather than firsthand, uh, you know, experience of, of, of Stancil himself. Yeah.
0: So. The full stencil. <laughs> you don't want to get the full stencil, man. I've been on the receiving end of a stencil <laughs> before you just get a bunch of like, whiny progressive policy experts in your replies like, oh, actually, the graph that you posted doesn't cover the diamond. In- well, it's annoying. Uh, but Stancil is actually a really good example here because what uh, he's been doing is he's trying to argue against uh, the sentiments of the masses in this country, that something is fundamentally off in the direction uh, that not just politics is taking. I mean, the political system has been delegitimated for years now in this country, but he's been arguing against the sort of economic, the, the sense of the economy that it seems like the massive people have in the United States and basically arguing that, People only feel badly about their economic lot in life because big bad media is convincing them that they have it so rough that they should be appreciative of Bidenomics. They should be appreciative of um, all that uh, this Democratic president has done to turn the economy around, uh, to fight off inflation while also providing full uh, employment. What's your sense of this discussion? What's your sense of the economy right now? And how is it that there is such a disconnect as Will Stansel believes, between what, say, the Bureau of Labor Statistics and the mm-hmm. progressive punditry is saying about the economy on the one hand, and what the broad masses of the American working class are feeling on the other hand?
2: Right, right. Yeah, so a, definitely a good question. But I think, I mean, the, the first thing you got to notice is that very often, almost always, when they're sort of crowing about the, the stats, it's usually these big aggregate categories, right? Like GDP growth or, or, you know, recently like employment growth as tracked by the Bureau of Labor Statistics on a monthly basis and sort of pointing to that and being like, look, why aren't you pigs happy? You know, like you got all the jobs, like things are going just great. But I mean, with you, like just taking, if you, if you start to scratch the surface on some of these categories, like pretty quickly, it starts to look a little more complicated or you know at least questionable like the most recent jobs report was you know came in like twice as much or like twice as high i think as like the government economists were originally estimating but if you look at the categories of the the hiring you know it was mostly in like food and leisure like the hospitality sector like some uh entertainment uh or not entertainment but yeah food and leisure hospitality um services like for you know broadly sort mostly in a in a in a broad sense and these are very broadly i think that was like you know well over half of the of the hiring and that is in sectors that are still very much um are uh workers are being remunerated at rates that um are either still not beating inflation or the rate of inflation so that their you know their pay is being consumed by the price rise or only just recently started to actually make tiny gains above the rate of inflation. And although even now, if you look at the latest data, like inflation starting to creep back up again, and uh, wages are like nominal wages are starting to go back down again, on the, again, on these like aggregate measures. So that could change again soon. So all that's to say that, I mean, over the last couple of years, you know, most of the wage gains that people have been making, such as they were, were mostly sort of eaten up by the, the inflation crisis so it's no surprise there that you know when you talk you see this when you talk to people and they're complaining about how stuff is unaffordable and how you know the cost of living is still ridiculous i mean especially if you live in a major urban area in this country right i mm-hmm. mean everyone pretty much every tenant has seen their rents go up by like in some cases you know 200 300 percent i mean insane over the last couple of years, and so if these expenses are like eating up over half your, you know, your monthly paycheck, and then you feel like you can't even afford, you still can't afford groceries. In addition to that, it's like who's gonna feel who's gonna feel good about that, you know? Yeah. But the vibes, the vibes are 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 uh, underlain by the net, the bad vibes are underlain by bad actual conditions. But um, beyond that too, I would just add that none of the data that people throw out people throw around the quantitative measurements and all of that gets at like the fact that most people still hate their job, right? You know, like a lot of people just hate the whole organization and experience of work in this country. And um, they hate the drudgery of it. They hate the meaninglessness of it. Yeah. We've,
0: we've been through a, a couple centuries now of the degradation of work and there was, you know, by the mid 20th century, there was a, like a new class of employment uh, in the white collar sector broadly, which um, provided some relative autonomy and freedom and like some sense of craft uh, and some sense of self-management in large parts of the uh, employment sector in this country. But even those good jobs such as they were. Uh, quote unquote, have now been degraded and with the threat of AI now, which might be overblown. I think it probably is a lot of the touting Mm -hmm. of artificial intelligence, chat, GPT or whatever I feel like is like business boosterism by people who have invested in that whole thing. But the point does remain that like even the quote unquote good jobs that one could get a college degree and do better in have become increasingly more uh, alienating, uh, more drudge Drudgeried, you know, mm-hmm. much, much, much less actually, um, you know, enjoyable for people by and large out there. So it's not, so when you mention vibes, I think it's important to bring out vibes too, because these broad quantitative indicators don't take into account that American society and I guess global society went through something of a world historically traumatic event over the last mm-hmm. few years. Uh, which has led to a lot of churn and royal, not just in the political sphere, but of course, in the economic sphere as well, which you're not going to get from BLS statistics. Right. But for the stancels of the world who are these sort of vulgar materialists, right, they want to look at these broad indicators and say, well, there's these stupid working class rubes don't understand how good they have it under Biden. When I think we hopefully have a more like nuanced understanding of what materialism is and, and what people might actually want out of life that isn't provided by the wage mm-hmm.
2: system. Like a Absolutely, future, for yeah. instance. Yeah.
0: Have
2: yeah. yeah. Oh, what's that, Andy?
1: Like a future.
2: Uh, future yeah yeah, future future would be nice yeah yeah we we reject the 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 vibes like vibes material conditions dichotomy you know Mm. yeah
0: (laughs) a little from column Um, a little from column b objective (laughs) and subjective you know qualities yeah yeah so where does that leave us right so like you know i we've been you know Proponents of crisis theory on this show since the very beginning for years now, and a lot of your writing, especially your most recent article uh, "Endgame: uh, Finance and the Close of the What Is It Finance and the Close of the Market System," is about uh, crisis. That's damage. actually
2: not the most recent one. Oh, it isn't. Um, Damn. There's the There's the bidenomics one. Oh, the um, bidenomics one. Um, but but no worries. Uh, we can bring that in later. Go ahead.
0: Yeah, no, I was going to say, like, um, we, we are proponents of crisis theory. And if you look at the history of the last 15 to 40 years or so, it seems as though there is a tendential decline in the rate of profits, like across time and also across space. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, though, it gives us um, pause to see things like um, – the after effects of uh, the tariffs on China, uh, the CHIPS Act and the IRA, and the uh, indicators we see that specifically construction in uh, manufacturing, like building of plants and the purchasing of fixed capital in advanced industries is increasing in the United States, which opens up a possibility that I'm willing to entertain, which is that Some, in what, some way, shape or form, uh, some combination of, uh, private capitalist initiative and government subsidy and policy. There could be some sort of virtuous cycle now of like accumulation that comes out of a transition to a green economy. Something that looks like in a very basic way, like, you, like I remember when there were cassette tapes and all of a sudden CDs came out and everybody, there was a huge boom in the publishing industry because all of a sudden everybody converted their, records and their cassettes over into CDs, and there were these ephemeral boost of profits for the music publishing industry that was just the replacement of an older technology and older processes with new ones. So where do you see this? Do you see the potential for a new virtuous cycle of growth? Do you think we've broken out of the doldrums of the great financial crisis, or do you think that the underlying crisis tendencies that you outlined so well uh, still pertain?
2: Yeah, I definitely... I would say I would I would agree we can't rule out the the possibility you know because we don't know we always have to exercise some humility right and admit that we don't know exactly what the future holds uh, and that capitalism is an extraordinarily resilient and dynamic system that can adapt and overcome with you know through through politics and policy and class struggle even and all kinds of different factors like the limits that it encounters and that could be true but that said you know i do i see some significant obstacles sort of in the in the future for the the project to kind of decarbonize the economy the american economy in in an effort to move towards like this you know through industrial policy like this new super productive like uh form of you know national of american capitalism that's like totally different from neoliberalism. Um, I mean, already, if you look at if you follow like the latest reporting on, you know, the attempt to to reshore supply chains, to fringe shore them, to to regionalize the, the, the global production network, sort of re- reconfigure it in a way that the U.S. elite, like really, and not just the U.S. elite, but, you know, other elites in other major capitalist countries as well are, are interested in doing. Uh, it's been a lot more uh, bark than bite. You know, the hype has also, similar to, to AI, I mean, the hype has been way bigger than what they've actually been able to accomplish so far. Um, and that, you know, it reflects the fact that the 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 frontier of production efficiency globally is still located in Southeast and East Asia, right? Like the most high-tech forms of uh of of production and um and uh like you know modular interconnected um forms of of industrial production uh that supply the global market are the most developed and advanced in that part of the world and so in, to the extent that you're trying to shift things over onto our side you know within our borders and contest that i mean you're 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 trying to contest a very, very well built out and very strong and still strengthening core of economic interrelations between, you know, China, Japan, South Korea, Vietnam, now increasingly like Cambodia, Indonesia, like Taiwan. Like it's, I mean, the U.S. is doing its best to drive political wedges right between these countries, but they're so economically integrated that like it's going to be quite a difficult project to really move the needle on that. And I think they're beginning to start to wake up on that, to that reality. I mean, you've seen sort of a, a bit of a thaw in, for example, like U.S.-China relations over the last couple months, to, a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, with like the the trips of Blinken Hyatt. went over there, right? Yeah, Blinken and uh, Raimondo. Yellen, yeah. Yeah, Re- Yellen. They've rog- all remember, been over there in yeah. recent months, yeah. Yeah. Um, kind of like a fig leaf Uh so, or, I mean, you know, an olive, an olive, an olive branch, branch yeah. as it were. So uh, maybe it is a fig leaf. In the <laughs> <end>. um, <laughs> it
0: might be, but it might actually be a reflection. I, I heard some commenters say that even the American blob, uh, including, you know, the vicious hawks within the democratic party started to think about the consequences of an actual war over Taiwan. If America heated up its rhetoric and uh, kept pushing And realized that uh, under these conditions in terms of, you know, what America has militarily and what it's committing in Ukraine, they realized they would lose very quickly in an engagement over there. So pulling back made sense from a sort of to to go into a more defensive posture and try to deal with this on, uh, on like economic and diplomatic terms made more sense. But
2: yeah, yeah. I mean, that could definitely they could definitely have been swayed by some of some of that analysis. It wouldn't surprise me.
0: It's, uh, Uh-oh. it's not just, you know, it, it's actually American capitalists too. I was reading the business press the other day and there's been, uh, pushback from, uh, what is it? China banned, first America put up tariffs on chips for China, right? And banned technology transfers between. And then China banned a micron from selling chips in China, micron being a, a Western company. And then, The Biden administration came back and tried to tell all the big makers in the United States that they couldn't sell to various different like military industrial complex connected companies in China. And the chip producers continued to sell and they tried to fight it in like the legal system because they understood that so many of their profits actually come from trade with China, that this was going to be a self-destructive move if they listened to American geopolitical policy, economic policy.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And also, I mean you know, if we're talking about the, you know, we're still in this inflationary crisis moment. And again, like the 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 supply side progressives or whatever, progressive economists are trying to celebrate that, like, you know, it's over and we're, we're headed back to normal or whatever. But if, you know, the US government continues to pursue this, like, very disruptive trade agenda with countries with mainly China but with that whole trading you know that whole in like industrial economic network in general you know like sort of disrupt the flows of commerce and production between these countries uh, and a success to the degree it's successful in doing so you know at least in the short to near term you're going to see upward more upward pressure on prices because i mean the labor networks and you know the productive networks in um that part of the world feed into so much uh, so many of the commodities and, that make up everyday life in this country, and I mean just about everything, you know. Still,
0: and the, and, and the um, uh, the cooperation of the American working class and its deindustrialization and its disaggregation over the last thirty or forty years was bought in large part. By the movement and the uh, of of labor uh to that part of the world and also a lot of the process innovations that made uh those things so cheap for the americans so if you take if you were to knock that piece of the tripod out, you know you could potentially have uh, not just more inflation but more revolt and political mm-hmm. disunity
2: yeah yeah, and they're very much they <laughs> they're very much in a mind to avoid that these days you know i mean we can get into this at some point but i that's kind of how i read the whole bidenomics project is like an attempt to quell you know what they saw as a very quickly uh rising situation of political and social instability in this country
0: let's let's get into that. actually andy you want to say something go ahead
1: yeah i mean how, how much do you think that bidenomics is just a rhetorical packaging of what the united states has had to do uh over the last three years like totally coincidentally of what biden wants or what trump wants or is it is it actually something of an assertive strategy or divergence from the obama administration or even the trump administration
2: um i would argue it's just trumponomics you know with a human face basically (laughs) okay for lack of a better uh so maybe that's sort of like your first you know the first option you propose but Yeah, I mean, I think they, you know, the ruling class, the ruling elite in this country and the political, you know, class that represents them and sort of advances their interests were very unnerved by the by the Trump presidency and kind of what they saw, what they saw, uh, the kind of radicalization they saw happening, the instability in the political system it created. And then, of course, we have the, the pandemic and their sort of bumbling and incompetent response to all of that. The the big the george floyd rebellion in summer of 2020 followed by the biggest you know global embarrassment that you know the u.s government and its ruling class have experienced in in generations i would argue which was the in january 2021 i mean the whole world just you know at that point was just watching that unfold and i think that was i I lay out all this in that Bidenomics essay you know if listeners are interested to go check that out but i think that's the that's when they sort of like that was the 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 final straw as it were, you know, and they were like, this shit has got to stop. We got to keep the populace out of the, you know, out of the presidency, got to get a handle on it. And after that is when you start to see them get serious about passing the legislation that became the IRA and the, you know, the infrastructure act and the chips act and all that shit. And I'm sorry for cursing. I don't know. No, no,
0: please. This is a, yeah, yeah, cursing is good, right?
2: Yeah. We're pro cursing. (laughs) So that's kind of how I, I mean, there's, there's more to to say about all that, but like you can, you can, you can understand it as them co-opting that what they saw as the promise of the the sort of Trumpian agenda to try to put it towards the consolidation, the reconsolidation of the kind the, the, the stability and the hold on power of like the broader ruling class,
0: Mm. right? Capital as such or American capital as such. Yeah. Well, in our last episode that Andy and I did, one that I'm afraid I was like terribly tired because I just got off from work from, we did actually stumble upon a really interesting question, I think, in the course of it, because we were reading about um, some of like the petty bourgeois resistance on the local level to the reshoring of manufacturing and talking about how economic policy or industrial policy in the United States is now inseparable from – Anti-Chinese rhetoric or policy as well, Uh, a real like red scare, yellow scare type situation. And I, I guess I posed the question, which maybe we can try to help answer, which is that when, you know, in the 1990s, when I came up politically, I don't know about you guys, but, you know, it was all about alter globalization and there was the, uh, or anti-globalization or like protectionism, national economics versus this sort of juggernaut of, uh, neoliberal globalization that was in the process of, of, of spreading through the world, starting in the United States. Uh, it was about protect, protecting American industry and American jobs from cheap labor overseas. Now we're in an instance where. The kind of not quite the opposite but we're now seeing like a swing back in the other direction and i wonder if you're the perfect person to talk about what a broader left response should be because in a truly marxist sense you are like a defender of aspects of globalization Uh, in your articles and your writing and your discussion you talk about how These inter, the way that markets, the way that production especially has integrated the American working class with the rest of the working class of the world, working classes of the world, we should see less as a liability or if, or at least we should see it as a potential for 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 having like a, a, as you call it, a determinant negation of globalization, of not destroying globalization, but instead overcoming it. So talk a little bit about that. Like, what are the stakes of this and how do we confront this uh, global economic terrain without falling back on the left economic nationalism? Or let's just be honest. Right economic nationalism which is more and more growing and has the potential to be a sort of proto-fascist threat
2: yeah yeah uh i mean i that's 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 in some sense like the most important question right because it's about how to how do we recover especially in in times like this when people are i would argue you know there's this kind of general sense of demobilization after the the run-up to the political events of you know first 2016, then 2020, and then the pandemic and kind of the exhaustion that came from that. You know, how do we like recover the idea uh, and the promise of like working class internationalism, right? And I think that that analysis has to be grounded in a a realistic appraisal of like what the political project of the U.S. state is right now versus what the projects are of the it's, you know, the the countries that identifies as its rivals, including China and Russia and, and Iran and, and so on and trying to orient ourselves right with a kind of to a or in relation to a clear-eyed understanding of what these different countries are doing are trying to do um, and what I've characterized as like this is like a, a moment of neo-imperial competition right um, in the classic sort of capitalist sense because it's rooted in uh, long-term the uh, like a a, a long-term stagnation, uh, a process of stagnation that you can see happening pretty clearly. You know, this is a well-known, fairly well-known argument you know, from the 1970s and on in the advanced, especially the advanced capitalist countries. And that, you know, you can look at growth rates, you can re- look at rates of labor productivity, you can look at the debt to GDP ratio of these countries, which has just been going up and up and up for the most part, with some change recently, but it's going to, you know, if you've seen like the latest projections of the US fiscal deficit over the next like 20 years, they're projecting it's just going to explode, you know, and, and reach the biggest it's ever been. And so you have, yes, this process of rising state debt, juxtaposed to, you know, a broad and slow, but very clear slowdown in rates of growth, and as measured by the conventional Either, either you know, the terms of GDP or value added or, or what have you, and so I think that's the context in which you know the the, go- the the governing class and the corporate interests that rule this country made the call to try to sort of kill two birds with one stone, as it were, which is to quell the legitimation crisis that we were just discussing a few moments ago, but to do so by you know pursuing this new illiberal international trade policy, right, based on trade sanctions, technology restrictions, breaking up old patterns of, of international commerce, and, you know, driving a wedge between different national economies and just essentially trying to force, you know, through through sheer economic and political muscle, you know, other economic actors to sort of go, go its way.
0: The broader and, weaponization of the dollar and the SWIFT system as well, obviously, and sanctions. Oh, yeah.
2: Throwing the full weight of they one thing they did is they got they got serious about throwing the full weight of the the power of like the dollar as a as a you know as a geopolitical technology you know that they can use to advance U.S. interests and like they 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 got really serious about that over the last four or five years I would argue and so all that's to say that I would argue like ultimately the domestic project of You know the the green industrial the new industrial policy biodynamics green social democracy whatever is actually just a a byproduct of this international zero-sum competition that we see developing between these different capitalist powers as overall growth rates are trending down and it's increasingly a zero-sum affair growth on a global level and so it's becoming more of a cutthroat inter-imperial conflict to determine who was going to benefit from whatever kinds of innovation opportunities, technological opportunities, and productive investment we have left, you know, to, to deploy. And, you know, all that, all that against a, a backdrop of, like I've said before, continuing um, overall stagnation. So, so yeah, I, so basically I see the domestic deployment of industrial policy as a byproduct of the, The international situation and we have to have a clear understanding of that international situation and the kind of international politics that it implies if we're going to be serious about, you know, working class internationalism as a political project in this moment, you know. Um, So I don't know if that that's that is a circuitous answer, but maybe it kind of gets at your your question.
0: (laughs) No, no, I think it it gives the backdrop for for your understanding and perhaps like a broader understanding of where we're at right now, because just throwing out proletarian internationalism and imagining what sort of unity might be created up and down supply chains or across borders in this like incredibly integrated uh, global world productive system is, I think, something that gets uh, short shrift. Very often, I think when people nowadays uh, talk about internationalism, it tends to be more of like a campus thing, like supporting one, um, mm-hmm. one country against another, like the BRICS versus the West or, um, or, or whatever the case may be. Or Russia versus Ukraine, right? They see internationalism in supporting Putin's war on the Ukrainians, whatever. Mm-hmm. But lost in all of that is that. Capital as this dynamic process, uh, capital as this giant maw that just pulls in more and more and more labor power into itself with declining returns, has created a situation where the Chinese worker and the American worker and the Italian worker and the West African worker are interconnected and in a sense socialized in a way that they never have been before. And that's something that we should see as an opportunity as daunting as what the politics out of that might look like. I think your orientation towards a sort of proletarian uh, international globalization is, is the right thing to be thinking about at this moment.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I, I mean, it's internationalism is the hardest, you know, political, project to kind of get your get your head around. And I've been writing about this stuff and thinking about it for years. And obviously we've seen this big sharp turn, this big nationalist turn, you know, pretty much everywhere over the last few years, rooted in the the kind of dynamics that I was just describing a few minutes ago. But yeah, the you know gl- labor remains labor remains globally socialized right it remains this like very dense network of connections and interdependencies and attachments between all the different workers of the world mediated by capital and the world market right but you know workers in this country remain closely associated in, in all kinds of ways through their labor with workers in southern china or vietnam or india or europe or, or wherever right because of the interrelated the connectedness of the production process globally and the world market so and this yeah,
0: this gets into your uh critique of financialization theory or like this conception which we've critiqued on this show that there is like a real economy that exists that we all know when we go down to main street or we go to our job and build a building or whatever it is, and that grafted on top of that is this sort of um, political process or this like elite process of financialization, which serves to like suck some portion of that up in in interest or in rents uh, that is divorced from the actual economic activity. And your writing, I think, is really good about showing how. Uh, this marketization, this globalization of finance, this increase of finance actually comes out of the quote unquote real economy and is inseparable from it, which is one of the ways I think you've been really good at uh, critiquing, say, the Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren wing of the Democratic Party who simply wants to nationalize finance uh, or some of them sometimes say they want to nationalize finance and take it out of the hands of the elites and bring it back into the people. But you've critiqued that. Talk a little bit about that process and why you think financialization is isn't, isn't adequate.
2: Well, we're not seeing this as much anymore in this moment, but before the pandemic, yeah, a lot of people were writing about the, these, you know, people were They had all kinds of new ideas, you know, as like because the Sanders moment was still happening and there was this prospect of like, oh, maybe the left will find itself in power sometime in the near future. Right. So we have to have like these policy programs figured out. And so there were proposals to, you know, nationalize things like index funds, for example, so that like you just have all the workers or all the all the citizens of a country invested in a fund that tracks the you know, it's, it's invested equally across the entire market and just basically goes up as the economy grows. And, you know, the, it's, it's, it's owned by the citizenry as a whole. And so everyone gets payouts from it. That was one sort of example floating around a national investment bank, right. Was another example, but the, all of these, like all of these proposals always sort of ended up Bo- boiling down to a contradiction between the the global reach and scope of you know wealth that's held in dollars, which is you know the the all of the the assets and the property that's owned by um owners and and capitalists and, and corporations very rich people all across the world that's held in dollars um and the the and the national the framework of the nation state right it was i mean, in some sense, you can't have the you can't have the global reserve currency that makes the entire global economy function and at the in some basic way and all and at the same time reappropriate all of that financial wealth to reinvest it just within the right the confines of the nation state like you can't have both and so the implications of i think of what a lot of these arguments were kind of suggesting was. Um, they just weren't. They were sort of turning a blind eye to whatever the consequences of that nationalization of, of finance would would look like. When you have the the world's reserve currency, that you know something like eighty percent or seventy five percent of commercial transactions are are conducted in worldwide. You know, still the the dollar has been sort of trickling down a little bit in terms of its centrality in global. Trade and investment and all that, but it's still far and away the most important currency. And so, yeah, so it's, you can't, you know, you can't have, you can't have both. And there was just, I just never saw a convincing account of how you would like that, how you would manage that transition, you know, without either wrecking the global economy or causing some other unimaginable catastrophe um it seemed like everyone was sort of just wishing or abstracting from all of that to to have these very nice pretty policy ideas you know about how about how we would take all this wealth from other parts of the world and just reinvest it back into the US without really getting into all the the messy and contradictory details of how of how it would work and so yeah that's kind of where i was coming from well with-
0: to to play devil's advocate or like maybe to um entertain the, my more uh, accelerationist tendencies. And, you know, one could argue, like, let the social democrats do it. Let them nationalize finance. Let them bring the dollar-denominated economy back down to earth. Blow the whole thing up, and then fucking we'll see where we're at. You argue that that's, that that de, that radical deglobalization would actually be worse for the global working class.
2: Well, I think that the consequences will be, I mean, pretty dire. We, we'd be looking at the, the potential, you know, breakdown of uh, the global economy, such as it is, you know, the dollar-based global economy, and which is already not doing great and already fostering this, you know, heightened and intensified form of capitalist conflict between the, 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 the major powers of the world. We're like, yeah, the, we could accelerate. We could, we could step on the accelerator and do that. But, I mean, we would just have to be ready for, you know, some true, potentially truly uh, terrible and unimaginable consequences globally, internationally, you know, as a backlash to that, if we, if we were to do that, because you'll be seeing a lot of desperate actors. So Only we'd have to be,
0: we, even to entertain the accelerationist uh, narrative, we'd have to be far better organized and more institutionally savvy than we have been probably in 100 years.
2: Yeah, I would, that's probably fair.
1: <laughs> this is a bit of an aside, but what do you think of the potential of Argentina dollarizing uh, under its new anarcho-capitalist yeah. president?
2: <laughs> president chainsaw. Yeah, yeah. I I haven't been following it closely, but he's, I mean, he's planning to just go ham on it, isn't he? Like, he's just going to... That's what he says. Yeah. I'm not
0: convinced he can actually do all of his policy proposals. Like, he wants to just institute, like, an Ayn Rand fucking, like, complete anarcho-capitalist policy. Like, impose it up...
1: No, he's going to do it gradually, but, like, getting rid of the National Bank and dollarizing, I think, are, like, early on in the process... Of course, getting slashing welfare. We'll have a whole episode. Yeah, about we this, should. Yeah, we
0: were talking about doing that.
1: Oh. I just, I was wondering if like dollarization might become more of a short term attractive thing to these states moving in like a right populist U.S. aligned direction.
2: Yeah, I mean it. It could. Um, I mean, clearly that you know that dude is into it. I think it's probably going to be disastrous, <laughs> but but yeah, I mean clearly you, you're beginning to see. Right political actors and especially right wing actors who are willing to to float some and try some really uh, reckless ideas, you know, like getting rid of your your country's national, you know, uh, economic institutional structure um, and just going anarcho capitalist with it. So I wouldn't be surprised if yeah we see we see more of those kinds of proposals begin to float up in the. But why is it reckless
1: compared to the current state of the Argentina economy, where it's just constant. Devaluation month by month.
2: Yeah, I mean it's um, it's a it, it's a drastic solution to a drastic crisis. You know that's I guess okay. that's sort of what I'm saying. Like it's not like reckless from some sort of like uh, technical like monetary per, like e- economic economist perspective, but more that yeah, it's like the situation. Like you know, Argentina has has been in a major crisis for a long time, and it's you're going to see that in in that country and others. Um, people with these kinds of ideas popping up more and more frequently in the future, I would, I would argue.
0: Yeah, I want to, um, to point to uh, uh, a, uh, a paragraph here that you wrote in your end game um, article, which I think is really good and, and really powerful. And it's about the breakdown. It's about the breakdown of capitalism capitalist production and profits. And then I want to use that to talk about, uh, the Brenner, the new Brenner debate, because we yeah. had a Brenner debate in the 1970s about the transition from feudalism to capitalism. Now we have Brenner and Dylan Riley arguing with, and, and people on their side, like Aaron Bennett uh, a friend of the show arguing against, uh, J.W. Mason and a, and a mm-hmm. whole passel of, uh, of Keynesian economists. But here's, here's the, the paragraph I think that helps ground this. As the premier capitalist country, the U.S. essentially takes on the mounting costs of reproducing the deteriorating conditions for global capitalist production, which show up as an exploding Fed balance sheet and national debt. At the same time, the expansion of governance into private finance and of finance into government erodes the basis for the market's competitive function. The further this dynamic progresses, the more the scope for the market shrinks. The more the market shrinks, the less profitable private production becomes relative to the revenues to be collected through finance. The less profitable private production becomes, the more the accumulation of capital is exhausted, requiring ever more drastic state intervention just to keep its heartbeat going, which further erodes the basis for the market. Traditionally, some form of planned economy is taken to be the alternative to market institutions. But there is not much planning happening here. Rather, this is something new. The abolition of the market without planning. This is uh, the end game, I suppose. Where is this process taking us? What, what do you see coming out of this? And how does it connect with the debate about political capitalism or techno neo feudalism or the place of bionomics and the new global order
2: yeah i think so that in that in in that essay that you were reading from and the I, i think in that part of the of that where that paragraph is right it's all about the the rise of these uh these massive asset management funds right like BlackRock and vanguard and so on uh that own like a huge a huge swath of the um The 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 distribution of like the you know the S and P 500 for example like the 500 you know biggest publicly listed companies in the U S and sort of own them own equal shares um, across that across that stock exchange and as a result have an interest in sort of preventing competition between the different companies who who make up the S and P 500 right because they don't want like sort of ruinous price competition between country, you know, between companies in which they have ownership stake, like they want, you know, basically a kind of like stabilized oligopoly situation. Yeah. A trust. Yeah. They want like some sort of, yeah, basically like a, a kind of trust, like old school trust. Yeah. 19th situation. century shit. Yeah. Where they can just, you know, see the, you know, the, the whole market goes up and their whole portfolio goes up and their investors are happy. And you know, the, Pension funds and the insurance companies that are invested in those, um, in them re- retain, you know, remain happy and, and all of that. And the U.S. government, right, has an interest in keeping this whole thing going too, because it works very closely with the asset management firms like, uh, the asset owners like BlackRock, you know, to, um, basically administer the the financial system i mean d- during the bailout of 2008 and during the coronavirus bailout they you know the us government like the fed and the treasury those economic institutions like worked very closely with blackrock i think to yeah. set up the instruments by which it was going to be done and kind of oversee how you know what what they were going to buy and and who they were going to sell to to kind of try to stabilize everything so it's become so these huge Asset management firms that, that own a huge swath of the market and don't want competition to happen in the market have become more closely aligned with the U.S. government, both operationally and in their overall interests, right? So like the, the sort of financial financialization of government and at the same time, the the Federal Reserve and the Treasury have had to become more actively involved in the everyday operation of the financial markets just to keep the whole thing going up. Like they have to work harder and harder and come up with new, you know, new instruments, new legal, uh, legal methods, new, new, new forms of operating um, more and more frequently in order to keep, you know, valuations going up and to keep bond prices stable and, and all of that. So the um, governmentalization of finance, right. The other side of that. And so, The longer that process goes on the uh, my argument there is the more you're seeing the kind of competitive dynamic that gives life to the capitalist economy ebbing away and being replaced by this form of uh, this increasingly intense form of governmental administration and that's that's more and more directly target you know act like directly and actively involved in the financial system itself on a regular basis and that that process is only getting only getting stronger and more intense over time, but that's what they have to do in order to keep the whole thing floating, you know, in order to keep it running. Um, so the solution is part of the problem, basically. Does that make sense? Yeah.
0: I think that there's like, um, you, you know, that something is becoming common sense when even the fucking stupid, know nothing dipshits on the right start to be correct about things. Sometimes and so uh-huh. you'll have this really <laughs> kind of shallow, like, Producerist sort of critique from the dissident right about BlackRock buying up all these, you know, single family homes or BlackRock is, I don't know, bombing chicken factories in the Midwest because they want to cause a crisis so that George Soros and Charles Chuck Schwab or whatever that guy's name is can come down and yeah. take, take all the good American petty bourgeois assets from them. But I think that this process you're talking about has leaked into like the broader common sense about how the world. World works, so I don't think it's off base to point to that dynamic as like as an important one, or maybe as like the overriding one, as we try to make sense of what's happened since two thousand eight, this massive intervention, and as you said, this financialization of governance and vice versa. Uh, I just wonder where that leads us with our sort of theoretical understanding of capitalism of capital in the current moment. Mm-hmm. Does that lead us to go with Brenner and Riley's very schematic and not very well thought out maybe, or at least um, not very um, theoretically advanced uh, conception of political capitalism where you have, as I think we all agree uh, diminishing returns on capital, uh, a dearth of profits leading to a zero sum game where in their, uh, in their argument, you have the government picking the winners and losers at that point in time. And, um, you know, competition becoming less, uh, on, on prices and innovations and production, uh, and trade, but instead becoming more of a political, um, football or, or like a, a grafted sort of oligarchic, uh, interface between Uh, particular elements of the bourgeoisie and the particular elements of the ruling class.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah. Stepping back, looking at that bigger picture, I mean, it's unmistakable that we are moving into uh, an era globally where it's, there's just a general turn towards more state managed state directed for like forms of capitalism, basically, you know, I, I hesitate to use, the phrase state capitalism, because it's so loaded, but, you know, for lack of a better phrase, it's like we are kind of moving into a a new era of state capitalism where governments have a lot, you know, and not in every case, but here and, and elsewhere, you know, they're starting to discard the old neoliberal assumptions, um, and starting to, uh, just sort of adopt the new, um, The new ideology of you know industrial policy and 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 progressive um fiscally driven growth maybe just as a as as to put a cap on what's already happening which i think is really what it is but but nevertheless it is we are moving into that era right of growing an expanding footprint of the state in national economies something that was unthinkable you know for like the last oh my god um, 30 years there's like-
0: there has been no alternative at least since we were born <laughs> and probably for like a, a few years before that i mean this sea change has gone i wouldn't say unnoticed like you'll hear about like the atlantic magazine being like oh are we in a different era right now but the about face that the ruling class has taken on both sides of the aisle in the united states has been incredibly swift mm-hmm.
1: yeah i mean they need to offer an alternative yeah, like we, we can't you can't just say there's no alternative as things get worse and worse.
2: <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> well, they thought they thought there was no alternative, right? Because that they thought that that model of you know globalization led sort of liberal internationalism, um, you know, with as much as possible unrestricted trade between the, the different economies of the world, open labor markets or relatively, what um, in like a you know an un- relatively unregulated or, or minimally regulated world market. Was the way to foster development and income growth and productivity growth and uh, the possibility of prosperity for people, you know, globally. Like I think a lot of the policy elite sort of, uh, you know, not like the corporate um, people, but like the, the policy elite convinced themselves that, oh, yeah, this is going to work like we, we figured yeah. it out. Um, but it ran them into, you know, all the crises of the post 2008 period and all the political instability that generated and all of these new political challenges. And then, you know, with the sort of the pandemic, uh, the eruption of the pandemic being and all the results, the outcome of that being like the, the kind of exclamation point on it. So they were just they eventually got to the point where they tried the, neo, I mean, they, they tried the neoliberal playbook after 2008, 2009. And eventually it just got to the point where, yeah, they had to do something else. Like they, you know, the, the, the the elites and the ruling class, they do learn eventually from their mistakes. It takes them a long ass time, but, um, and usually lots of people have to suffer before they do. But in order to you know, to save their own skin, they, they eventually, yeah, they came around.
0: It's fascinating because, um, you know, five years ago on this show we were talking about, The transition from the Fordist era into neoliberalism and how there was this key pivot moment in the 1970s where you see the ruling class floundering in the face of a decline in profits and an increase in unemployment. Uh, and trying various different measures, doubling down on uh, price controls, you know, attempting to use industrial policy, attempting to work with the trade unions to keep wages down in an era of high inflation. And all of this leading to what was eventually found to be the solution, which is what we now call neoliberalism, as though neoliberalism was like a policy platform uh handed down by Milton Friedman or the St. Pellier group, you know, in the 1950s had this evil plan to bring neoliberalism in, you know, we're seeing the same, a a very similar process today. And it seems like we're finally now like 15 years out, starting to see the outlines of what this new era, what this new regime of accumulation is going to look like. But with the, the caveat that in the 1970s and 1980s, there was actually an into the 90s there was actually an uptick in all this creative destruction uh there was the movement of all sorts of uh industrial plant and jobs across the world there was the structural adjustment of all sorts of um global south countries and like those fruits being brought into the capitalist core there was all this churn that actually leads to you know a, a short period of development now and especially when you're talking about, I think where uh Brenner and Dylan Riley are correct, especially when it comes to, say, like uh, semiconductor chips, you're leading to like an incredible overcapacity crisis coming down the pipe, especially with these leading edge industries like uh, chips and, and semiconductors because you've now, you're now creating an entire additional manufacturing base of chips outside of that one that is already, that already exists in East Asia and doing it through massive government subsidies. And if we read our, uh, Paul Maddox Sr., who was writing it, uh, Marx and Keynes in the 1960s, um, he wasn't afraid to call it state capitalism. Uh, but mm-hmm. what he meant it in a different way, I think, than a lot of other people did. But what he pointed to was that this state investment, you know, the state ownership and state investment, uh, while it may add to the absolute production of goods, has like a diminished capacity to actually increase the rate of profit because every all the profits made in that industry or across that sector then have to be deducted from the ratio of its total. Production, mm-hmm. you know, some of which is non productive coming from the state sphere. So that's a long way of saying, like, it's possible, and Varn, Derek Varn, and I have talked about this potential that you'll see a new regime of accumulation, but without accumulation or with rates of accumulation low enough that it's going to feel like an ongoing economic disaster while maybe st- stabilizing things for the various ruling classes of the world for a short period.
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, it's a distinct possibility. I I tend to. Well, first, yeah. The so yeah, you mentioned Brenner and Riley and political capitalism. That argument. I think I you know clearly they get something right that like the you know national economies like economic production capitalism is being is being like sort of repoliticized in an important way, and states are exercising a more assertive role in their in their national economies, and that it's becoming increasingly de- sort of dependent on that as its mechanism of, of growth. But what I resist in that thesis is this idea that it's now, you know, productive investment is more or less done or, or, or greatly emaciated. And it's mainly just about rent seeking between politicians and like their, you know, politically connected Uh, associates in in the financial system right and it's it's and it's like system of kickbacks and and donations and it's it becomes this kind of story like if you read the seven theses on american capitalism essay of theirs right it it becomes a kind of story about like predatory state elites and how like the you know the federal reserve is just causing all this asset inflation and the stock market and it's, it's this fake form of growth which is to some degree of course true but it's just at some point in that story, like you know, the the exploitation of labor and capitalist social relations kind of drops out as like a motor of, of growth, and it's still just as important as as obviously it, it as it ever was, and um, you know, it's still ultimately the source of profits. And so, I yeah, so I disagree strongly with that part of that analysis. But the but the the argument, you know, what they're get what they're driving at, that like the you know, the state clearly is playing a more important role in economic activity these days and this that's wildly that's quite different and on some important ways from the neoliberal period is like, you know, that's that's definitely true.
0: Yeah, I think that we can admit that on a descriptive level they're trying to get at the contours and the outlines of this new phase of accumulation or lack thereof. But there's still a lot of work to do on the analytical level of understanding how this ties into, you know, exploitation and production and labor power and all that stuff. But that's, you know, a longer term thing that I guess we'll be doing for the rest of our lives unless we can (laughs) overthrow this fucking terrible (laughs) wage system.
2: Yeah, it's also I would just add that it's very U.S. centric, that argument, you know, and I think. At one point, it might have been the essay Brenner wrote during the lockdown, like escalating plunder. It was the yeah. one about the Fed, you know, which was again a good description of what was happening. But, uh, but you know, has some has some issues that some stuff I would take issue with. But nevertheless, at the end of that, I think it's the end of that one. He says, and there, and I'm going to write about the global backdrop of all of this. <laughs> I think it's like the last sentence. You know, in my next essay for New Left Review or something, and that just oh, yeah. never appeared. You never wrote it, yeah. so we're sort of left, yeah, just to guess how he would extend that to the international scene.
0: Well, it's a it's a work in progress. Um, I think this we're at about an hour, so this is, I think is a good time to take it into the the patrons side of things. We're gonna, I think, I want to talk a little bit more about uh, pro- proletarian internationalism. And, uh, are you still involved with this project? The, um, uh, is global initiative,
2: not actively these days. I'm still friends with, with the, some of the organizers, the key organizers in that organization, but, uh, not, not actively these days.
0: We can maybe try to flesh out then what our imaginary of, um, you know, sublating globalization instead of destroying it would look like, and we should also, um, you know, facts on the ground are changing every minute but we'll also address what's happening uh in gaza right now uh a bit so if you want to hear the rest of this conversation uh patreon.com slash the antifada become a patron
1: and i just want to add that we have just a few postcards and stickers left so if you've never gotten those and you're a patron just dm me on patreon with your mailing address or if you're a new subscriber DM me with your mailing address and I'll send those right out to you. Okay. Jamie Merchant, thanks so much. We'll see you on the other side.
2: Okay.
1: All right. When I was young, we connected when we were a little bit older, both sprung. I got issues and chips on both of my shoulders. Reputation precedes me.